At work, at home, or on the road, you deserve great coffee. A Heine Brothers coffee subscription plan gives you top quality organic and fair trade coffee delivered right to your door or office automatically. You select the frequency, the quantity, and the variety of coffee, and Heine Brothers will take care of the rest, shipping included. Also makes a great gift, so order online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com forward slash subscription and use the offer code the past for five dollars off any gift subscription well hello everyone this is mick and this is the past and the curious i'm so glad you're here uh it's april 2020 there's a lot going on and uh i hope that this is going to you know make a difference in a little bit of a way who knows um made a difference for me to make it so i'm glad to be here everybody if you don't know about the kids listen activity podcast i highly recommend you check it out it is a daily podcast feed that kids listen which i'm a big part of is putting out um, while schools are closed during the spring of 2020 you might find a new favorite show from Kids Listen, and uh, there's also an activity bundled with each one that you can find on the Kids Listen website. So that's something that you all can do, families can do, while you're looking for things to do, like many of us probably are. I'm excited because next week I will be releasing a special episode. Surprise! It's uh, it's definitely inspired by what's going on in the world around us right now, but it is still going to be very much what you would expect from the past and the curious. I also need to thank my good buddy, Mr. Eric from What If World, such a great podcast. He is the voice of Teddy today, I mean Theodore Roosevelt today in this episode. Hope you enjoy. Here we go, y'all. Early in the year of 1901, the manager of the Bronx Zoo in New York got a very unusual letter. The typewritten note was dated January 2nd. Gentlemen, I have a small bear named Jonathan Edwards and we find we do not have the accommodations to keep him. So I should like to present him to the Bronx Zoological Gardens. Can you send someone out here to tend to his shipment? Then, written by hand next to this, is a further question. I think it says, Or shall I ship him myself? But it's hard to read the messy, scribbled handwriting. In any case, the letter is signed, Yours truly, T. Roosevelt. Now, as you might have guessed, that T. Roosevelt is... Theodore Roosevelt, a man who would soon unexpectedly find himself as the President of the United States. But that probably wasn't the first thing that jumped out to William Hornaday, manager of the Bronx Zoo. His thoughts were probably something like, Bear. A bear? A pet? Bear? In New York? Of course you don't have any accommodations to keep him. Who does? He's a bear. And wait, did you say his name is Jonathan Edwards? What kind of name is that for a bear? You name a bear Pooh, or Growly, or Barry, maybe even Snuggles if he's got the right personality, but Jonathan Edwards? What kind of weirdo? Oh, right. Teddy Roosevelt. <clears throat> Theodore. You see, Theodore Roosevelt had just finished his duty as governor of New York State. That term ended on December 31st, and on that upcoming March 4th, he would be sworn in as Vice President of the United States. 
In the time between governing and vice presidenting, it seems Teddy <clears throat> was trying to take care of some personal matters, which included, but were not limited to, a live bear. Rather than ask the million questions that were surely on the zookeeper's mind, William Hornaday just said, yes. It was Teddy Roosevelt, after all. <clears throat> Theodore. Right, right. But Hornaday did ask where on earth the bear came from. Soon-to-be Vice President Roosevelt had already moved on to other matters because his reply was short and sweet. My dear Mr. Hornaday, the bear came from West Virginia. Very truly, Theodore Roosevelt. That's not a lot of information from a man who could be pretty verbose. That means he talked a lot. And he also wrote a lot. Dude wrote 35 books in his lifetime and over 150,000 letters to people. So you'd think he could have offered a bit more explanation as to what he was doing with a bear at his house. A few months prior, he did elaborate a bit more in one of those 150,000 letters that he wrote to a friend. He told his pal that some supporters in West Virginia had presented the bear to him as a gift. And well, you can't say no to a gift especially a hairy one with sharp teeth. Honestly, a pet bear wasn't entirely off the charts for the Roosevelt. While Jonathan Edwards, the bear, would eventually go to live in the Bronx Zoo, it might not have felt that much different from the Roosevelt home to the creature. He would have been more than used to being surrounded by a mess of animals. And I'm not talking about the six Roosevelt kids running around the home. I'm talking about all of their pets. The list of Roosevelt family pets goes on and on. There was a lizard named Bill, and a pig named Maud, a badger named Josiah, and a blue macaw named Eli Yale. Baron Spreckle was a hen, and Peter was, of course, a rabbit. There were also a whole bunch of guinea pigs with names that don't disappoint. They were called Admiral Dewey, Dr. Johnson, Bishop Doan, Fightin' Bob Evans, and Father O'Grady. As if that weren't enough, there was also a one-legged rooster, a hyena, a barn owl, a pony, and my favorite, a green garter snake named Emily Spinach. As you can see, the Roosevelts took their pets, and their pet names, quite seriously. Animal hijinks and shenanigans were very common among the six Roosevelt kids. Once, when Brother Archie was sick in bed, his siblings hatched a scheme to cheer him up. They led their pony up the stairs to his room to surprise him. Which it certainly did, but the pony was more excited to see his reflection in a bedroom mirror. So much so that he would not leave. And then there was the time that Quentin burst into his father's office. At the time, Teddy... <clears throat> Theodore! Right, sorry. Theodore was in the middle of an important closed-door meeting with senators and other politicians. Closed doors don't always mean much to a kid with animals in his pockets, and Quentin didn't think twice about interrupting the meeting. The men kindly obliged and paused the meeting while the boy threw his arms around his beloved father, who surely laughed proudly and started to shoo the boy away. But Quentin had a surprise. The boy pulled four snakes out of his pocket and placed them on the table in the middle of the room. Apparently, these men did not have a similar menagerie of animals in their own households because these powerful, yet easily frightened men jumped up like popcorn and scrambled to the edge of the room faster than greased geese. It was surely a funny moment for the Roosevelts. So, as we've said, Jonathan Edwards would live his days in the Bronx Zoo. 
But he wasn't the only fateful bear in Teddy's life. <sighs> Theodore. Okay, he wasn't the only fateful bear in Theodore's life. No, there was another. Roosevelt was sworn in as vice president in March of 1901. And six months later in September, he was president of the United States. It wasn't supposed to happen that way, but President William McKinley was assassinated while attending the World's Fair in Buffalo, New York. Theodore Roosevelt took his place and made history in many ways. Theodore was an extremely energetic man. Some say he had a photographic memory because he could do things like perfectly recite poems that he had read and not seen again for decades. He read books nearly every day. Some people saw him read two or three pages a minute. He was very proud of his speed reading skills. But it wasn't just learning that he engaged in. Roosevelt loved the outdoors. In fact, as a president, he set aside 230 million acres of land to protect and save so that Americans for many generations could enjoy these forests, parks, and animal sanctuaries. Theodore loved to spend time in nature himself. He loved to horseback ride, and he was also an avid hunter. In November of 1902, just after his first full year as president, he made a hunting trip to Mississippi on invitation from the governor of the state. There were several other people in the party, and before long, the president was the only one who had not shot a bear. This was embarrassing for the governor. How could they leave Teddy out? Theodore! Right, right, right. The Theodore. So, anyway, in an effort to guarantee success for the president's bear hunting trip, the guides devised an unfortunate and unkind plan that involved tying a bear to a tree for Roosevelt to shoot. When he discovered the creature in such a state, Roosevelt was disgusted and refused to shoot it. What could have been a forgotten moment soon captured the American imagination and then gave birth to one of the most common items found in kids' rooms all around the world still today. A cartoonist was inspired by the story and sketched an image of Roosevelt refusing to shoot the bear. The cartoon ran in the Washington Post, which was a major newspaper, and it immediately connected Roosevelt to bears in the minds of Americans, probably most of whom never even realized that he had a pet bear in New York for a while. One American who saw this was a candy shop owner from Brooklyn, New York, named Morris Mictum. It began with two soft, cuddly stuffed toy bears that he and his wife Rose had made. He stuck those bears in the window of his candy shop and called them Teddy's Bears. Before long, he spent all of his time making those, and even started a toy company that would live on for decades. So whether you knew it or not, that teddy bear in your bedroom is named after a president who didn't even like being called Teddy. Theodore! Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. 
I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery, from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories, and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts, or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. It's time for You Have 30 Seconds. This month, it's my pal Peter talking about Buzz. Take it away, Peter. My name is Peter, and I want to tell you about Buzz Aldrin. Buzz Aldrin was born on January 20, 1930 in Montclair, New Jersey. In 1969, he flew to the moon on a mission called Apollo 11, and he and Neil Armstrong were the first people to walk on the moon. Buzz also took the first space selfie. He and Neil Armstrong walked around on the moon for 2 hours and 15 minutes. They flew back to Earth and landed in the Pacific Ocean. Buzz worked for NASA for a total of 8 years and spent 289 hours and 53 minutes in space. That's a lot of time in space. Like, way more than 30 seconds. Thank you, Peter! That was awesome. I can't imagine packing any more information about Buzz Aldrin into 30 seconds. Really well done. I'm really knocked out by that one. Great job. If you'd like to submit your own You Have 30 Seconds segment, it's very easy. The information instructions are on our website, thepastandthecurious.com, but really, all you need to do is record it as a voice memo on a phone and email it to us. We'll do the rest. Thank you very much, everybody. Well, I do declare. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Quiz time again. Question number one. The company Morris Mictum founded around the success of the teddy bear was called the Ideal Toy Company, and one of its best-selling items was the Betsy Wetsy doll. Do you know what this doll did? Betsy Wetsy debuted in 1934, and it was a baby doll that would wet its diaper after someone put water in her mouth. It gave children everywhere the real-life thrill of changing diapers. You might be surprised to learn it was very popular and remained a bestseller for 50 years. Question number two. One of the last successful toys for the Ideal Toy Company was imported from Hungary, where it was called the Magic Cube. What was the name of this toy in America? It was called the Rubik's Cube, which is named after the inventor Erno Rubik, who was a sculptor and a professor of architecture. Some estimate that at the height of the Rubik's Cube craze between 1980 and 1982, over 2 million of the puzzle cubes were sold. I, personally, have never been able to solve one, but I've seen some kids do it. And question number three, your third and final question. This is a question about bears, since that's the title of the episode. A group of wolves is a pack. A group of jellyfish is called a smack. A group of toads is called a knot. Do you know what a group of bears is called? You have two options. You can call it a sloth of bears or a sleuth of bears. Just don't wake them up if they're sleeping, please.
Nobody goes out alone. That was the new rule from Meriwether Lewis to the men of the Corps of Discovery. After a particularly pants-wetting encounter with a ferocious Ursus horribilis, which is the Latin term for grizzly bear, Lewis insisted everyone in the group use the buddy system if they were heading out on a task from here on out. The decision came from first-hand experience. You see, just a few days before, Lewis was exploring near a riverbank when he was surprised by the growls of a gigantic, hulking grizzly bear just a few feet away from him. The bear wasn't saying hello, but was instead sizing the man up. It would seem the grizzly had the idea to make a meal out of the explorer, and since Lewis's rifle was not loaded at the time, there was a good chance that Meriwether could wind up on the menu. Lewis had no choice but to break into a dead sprint. He ran like a man with his pants on fire, as the bear followed so close behind. Approaching the river, Meriwether Lewis dove in, swimming to the middle where he could stand on his tiptoes. There, he thought it was deep enough that the bear couldn't touch the bottom with all four feet, and so that might give him a reason to turn around. The bear paused on the bank, gazed at Lewis for a minute, and then walked away. Luckily, the creature decided the meal was not worth the effort. Also, luckily for Lewis, no one can tell you wet your pants if you jump in a river. When Lewis and his co-captain William Clark started making plans for their epic 8,000-mile trip, they had to decide very carefully what they would bring. Everything they carried would have to solve a problem. The problem of what to eat in the middle of the wilderness. The problem of what to offer Native Americans in trade. The problem of how to not get lost. The problem of navigating rivers and mountains. And then there was the problem of keeping 30 or so men that were on the journey healthy. Before they left, Meriwether Lewis's boss, none other than Thomas Jefferson, made arrangements for him to study with Benjamin Rush. Dr. Rush was one of the leading doctors of his day, and a man who just so happened to be a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He gave Lewis a crash course in tending to the sick, dressing wounds, and more. Rush also gave him a list of ways to maintain good health among the men. It included such sage advice as, If you are exhausted, you should rest. Which should be pretty obvious. But other advice like, Bathe the feet in cold water each morning might have made less sense and probably weren't that effective. But more than anything, he was remembered by the men on the journey for the 600 big medicine pills he sent with Lewis. They were officially called Dr. Rush's bilious pills, and the doc instructed them to be given to the men any time they were feeling sick. Inside these pills were two main ingredients, jollop, which is a laxative, and mercury chloride, which is also a very strong laxative. Given the size of the pills, the result was a super-duper King Kong mega-laxative. That meant as soon as the men ate one, whatever was in their stomachs came flying out the other end, if you know what I mean. As you can imagine, the men quickly came to dislike the pills, and they soon began to call them Dr. Rush's Thunderclappers. Because, well, they went through you like lightning. Interesting to note, mercury chloride isn't just a laxative, it's actually poisonous, and mercury is a heavy metal. The bulk of the thunderclapper pills couldn't get processed by the body, so when one of the men's stomachs was uh, emptied, much of the mercury came with it. And this mercury never really disappears from the soil. 
This means researchers can test the soil today and find exactly where these men had diarrhea way back in 1805. Pretty glamorous stuff, huh? Anyway, thunderclappers aside, there was one main problem Lewis and Clark were not equipped to deal with. Bears. Most of the men on the journey were originally from the eastern states, and there were plenty of bears there, but the bears that they were used to were a cousin of the grizzly known as the black bear. Now, black bears are not anything you want to mess with, but they are typically less aggressive than a grizzly, and they are also much smaller. During the first leg of the journey, the group had seen some signs of large bears, but had yet to have a real encounter. When they spent the first winter with the Mandan Indians, which was where they met Sacagawea, they were warned about the bears, which the Mandan called the Ho-Host, or White Bear. Now, picturing the bears they knew back east, the men were overconfident. Their reaction was along the lines of, Oh, we've seen bears before. We're not worried. We can handle ourselves. Just look at us. The Mandan were probably like, yeah, sure. Uh, okay, dudes. I'm sure you'll change your tune soon. And change their tunes, they did. The first mature grizzly they met gave them such a fright and such a fight that they quickly realized they were not prepared to handle the creatures. Unfortunately for them, they'd run into plenty more of them before the expedition was complete. You know, I wonder if they ever considered using thunderclapper pills on a grizzly. That might be one sure way to make sure a bear loses its appetite. After Lewis's pants-wetting river encounter with the bear, the men did a pretty good job of keeping to the buddy system. But the following year, after making it to the Pacific Ocean and turning around to head home, they might have gotten a little lax. One day, near a spot that they had been to before, Lewis dispatched one of his men, Hugh McNeil, to see if he could find some supplies that they had left behind a year prior, hidden in a cache. Hugh would not be able to complete his task. While on the way, riding horseback through some dense brush, he practically ran over a grizzly bear. Spooked, the horse jumped and fled, dumping Hugh alone on the ground just below the terrible, angry beast. Imagine Hugh's panic when he realized he was unable to fire his rifle at the bear. Thinking fast, and now picturing the rifle as a bat in his head, Hugh clobbered the creature with the butt of the gun. The impact on the bear's thick skull broke his rifle, and left the bear seeing stars for just enough time to allow Hugh to locate a tall willow tree within a short distance from he and the quickly recovering bear. Like another man with his pants on fire, Hugh ran to the tree and scrambled up its trunk. Soon enough, the bear had come to its senses and was hot on his trail. Missing Hugh's legs as the man climbed higher into the tree, the bear decided not to climb in after him. He had a better plan. He would sit, and he would wait. Both Hugh and the bear knew the man would have to come down sooner or later, and the bear seemed to be making it very clear that he had all day. He hunkered down and stared up at the man in the tree. And there they stayed playing the slowest, most boring game of chicken ever, for an hour. And then it probably evolved to a man-bear staring contest for a few more hours. And now they were just being stubborn. More hours went by, and as the sun moved from one side of the sky to the other, Hugh felt the pangs of hunger and heard the distant or immediate sounds 
of nature calling. Luckily, he hadn't had a thunderclapper that day, because he dared not move a muscle. His hope was that the bear would leave. He also wondered where his horse was, as a trusty mount was not easy to come by in the middle of nowhere. And what about Lewis and Clark? Surely they'd miss him after a while. Maybe they'd send a search party. You know, for the entirety of the expedition, only one single member of the party had died. And that was Charles Floyd. It wasn't a bear or any sort of conflict that took him. It was appendicitis. And there were no amount of thunderclapper pills that could have saved him. But Hugh certainly didn't want to become the second. So he straightened his resolve and got as comfy as he could up in that tree. The journals of the trip make no record of dialogue, but Patrick Gass's journals include a sketch of the event. It's still hard to believe that Hugh didn't have a few words for the bear down below. Who knows what brought an end to the day-long standoff, but eventually the bear got tired of the staring contest and he wandered off. Not to be fooled, Hugh waited and then cautiously climbed down. Most of the men were experienced trackers, and amazingly, Hugh was able to follow the tracks of his horse and remount the animal. He rode back into camp with bad news about the cache of stuff that he was supposed to find, but good news about how he didn't get eaten by a bear. The better news was that he had an amazing story. Okay, for the song this month, I went way back in my archives and I found something that I recorded a long time ago, like before I had a computer recording setup. I recorded this on my phone. Um, it's super goofy. It doesn't sound that great, uh, you know, like the quality, but it was this crazy idea that I had to take the Lewis and Clark journey and reframe it and sing it to the entire Sgt. Pepper's album by the Beatles. That was my crazy idea. <laughs> I don't think I made it much further than this. Sorry for inflicting this upon you. Here we go. So yeah, 
yeah, that was something I did. And you had to know the joke of Dr. Rush's Thunderclapper pills, and now you do, so I guess it works on you. I think I had a whole lot of things mapped out, but I'll save that for never. Anyway... Thank you for listening. This was a really fun episode to put together. Like I said, there's going to be another episode coming like within a week or 10 days or so, which is again, pretty fast, but um, I don't know. I was at home a lot, obviously. And once the kids went to sleep, um, I felt like I wanted to do it. I wanted to reach out to everybody. So um, just keep your ears out for that. Patreon people, you are in for a treat. I am going to be sending out very soon. As soon as I get the stamps in the mail, uh, a brand new zine booklet. It's a 16 drawings that my friend Brianna Jacoby did of characters from the show, along with just a short summary of who they were and what they did. Uh, it's really cool. I, I am excited about it. You can also see the images um, and read the text on the, the Past and the Curious Instagram account. Speaking of Patreon people, I have a ton of people to thank this month, which is super awesome. I'm really excited, everybody. Um, Lisa, Audrey, Liam, and Lucas. Hello out there. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you're out there. Uh, Cole, who I understand loves the cheese episode, which is awesome. And I also understand that he has a Heine Brothers mug. I hope you're drinking from that mug right now, Cole. Zion. Zion and Eden. Zion and Eden. Thank you so very, very much. Oh, but that's not all. Eleanor, Eleanor, Eleanor and John, John in California. Eleanor and John in California. But wait, there's more. Paul, Kate, Paul, Kate Jill, Jill in Arizona. Paul, Kate, Kate Jill. Jill. Jill, Kate, Kate Paul. Paul. Yeah. Yeah. And last but not least, Sawyer and Braden Daniels. Daniels. Sawyer and Braden Daniels. Not another Sawyer, not another Braden. The two brothers, Sawyer and Braden Daniels. All of their friends, it's them, okay? It's the ones that you think it is. It's them. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. I'm Mick Sullivan reminding you to hang in there. Keep your chin up and be kind to everyone, including yourself. I hope to hear from you one way or another. Until next time, bye everyone. One weird day in 1876 in Bath County, Kentucky, meat fell from the sky. Meat? 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 Meat! Yes, meat. And in 2019, we were weird enough to write a book about it. Not just any book, because we can't do anything normal. What we decided to do is pretend that the only surviving piece of meat in the world, which really does exist, yeah, we made him the narrator of our story. I can't wait to share it with you. It is called The Meat Shower. It is available now as we speak, or as I speak. I don't know if you're talking right now or not. As you listen and as I speak, it is available now. You can go to our website, thepastandthecurious.com, or the publisher's website, earlyworkspress.com, for more information. The Meat Shower.